Good morning. Wow, what a great song to enter into this time of, uh, of preaching and study of God's Word. Um, I'm going to invite you to pull out that insert that you find inside of the bulletin. On one side of it, it has uh, the sermon title, Obligation. As you see up here on the screen, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17 as we go through Romans 8 over the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm really excited that I'm, I'm going to do the first couple of sermons. I'm really excited that in, on the last Sunday of this month, Jonathan Morris is going to be preaching uh, the latter part of Romans 8 and would ask not only that you pray for me as we go through this message together uh, over the next couple of weeks, but you'd be praying for him as he prepares and gets his heart and mind and soul and spirit and all of that right to preach to you on the last Sunday of this month. On the uh, back side, we're going to find the MPG. The MPG is the memorize, the pray, and the glorify. It's what you take home with you later this week to work on that pertains to what we talked about this morning. Now, Romans chapter 8. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of really powerful words in the English language, and you know, they just sound like what they mean, right? One of those words is extinction extinction. It's just, um, it's, it's just kind of a hard word. I mean, it comes out uh, a little harsh, and, and the word itself means to not exist anymore, to cease in existence. It no longer exists. It's now extinct. And there are a lot of things. I mean, it's such a sad and kind of a brutal reality of, of planet Earth, right? That there are things that have existed and now they are extinct. One of those, dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are extinct. They no longer exist. Another in more recent history that now is extinct, disco music. That's a big one, thankfully. I know some of you love it. Uh, and that's fine. You know what else is extinct? Full-service gas stations. Remember full-service gas stations? You know, back in the day, we drove really, really big cars. We don't drive big cars that much anymore. Uh, in, in the 60s, the Absures drove a 1968 Pontiac Bonneville. Kind of this purple maroon on the outside, white vinyl on the inside. It was as long as it was wide, and we drove that thing. And, you know, my dad, when he was driving, that thing ceased to be dad. He became Admiral Absher driving this aircraft carrier down the highway. And, you, you know, it, 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 it took a lot of gas, and so we'd go to the gas station a lot. And, uh, you know, there would be times when we would pull into these full-service gas stations, and you know what happens. Uh, you know, we have self-service now. You get out of the car, you, you do it yourself. In the old days, you used to drive up, park the car next to a gas pump, turn the car off, roll down the window, sit back, and you'd wait for an attendant to show up. And when that attendant would come over to the window, he would say, what can I help you with? And you would say something like, fill her up with premium. Or if you were just kind of in a hurry and you were just going down the road a little bit, you would say something like, just give me $2 of regular. And the service attendant guy would go and he'd kind of crank up the, the gas pump and he'd take the nozzle, put it in the gas tank. He would watch it, ding, 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 until it got to $2. Then he'd pull it out, 
you know, put the nozzle back up, go over to the driver, collect the $2, and you would be on your way. Um, when it comes to God, are you a filler-up or a just-give-me-two-dollars kind of believer? When it comes to God, are you a filler-up or just a give-me-two-dollars kind of believer? The just-give-me-two-dollars kind of believer wants God near enough in order to pray to Him when I need to, to be loving enough to give me eternal life, to be stern enough to take care of all of the bad guys, and to be flexible enough to not get in my way when I don't want Him in my way. Now here's the thing, church. Scripture does not recognize a give-me-two-dollars-worth-of-God kind of believer. Why? It is because nominal Christians produce an anemic Christianity. Say that with me. Nominal Christians produce an anemic Christianity. Let's say it one more time. Nominal Christians produce an anemic Christianity. The result of this kind of nominal religion is wanting options over commitment. It's wanting peripheral things over the core. It's small-scale rather than glorious. It's non-obligating over surrender. It's convenience over discipleship. It's nonchalance over a cross. Brothers and sisters, God, the, the, God, the gospel of God creates disciples, not admirers. The gospel creates disciples, not admirers. And now we know what an admirer is, right? Somebody stands at a distance. An admirer gives warm approval. We'll give a modicum of respect. You know, they see something, there's that golf clap. You know, oh, you know, well done, well done. A disciple, on the other hand, gives their life, lock, stock, and barrel. Which brings us to the second message in Romans chapter 8. The chapter, you'll remember last week, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, begins with these words, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. A Christian is an uncondemned human being. Remember the three words that we looked at last week? We are uncondemned. We have moved from condemnation to being uncondemned to no condemnation because the, the solution, that was the first word, to our problem of sin is the work of Jesus. Solution was the first word. Mind was the second word. We get our mind around what it is that God is trying to do. And the third part of that is the spirit. So solution and mind and spirit, it is the spirit that brings a new life. Now that's the first part, the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 8. Now the second part begins with these words in Romans chapter 8 verse 12. Therefore, it begins with the same word, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. We have an obligation. Now, one of the commentators on Romans chapter 8, a fellow by the name of Leon Moores, uh, no longer alive, uh, very important uh, writer from a past generation, he makes a very interesting observation on this chapter, Romans 8, one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. 
He says, in this most important chapter of the Bible, there are no imperatives. There are no commands. One of the things that is at the heart of Romans chapter 8 is the work, the emphasis is on the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer. There are not imperatives, there are no commands, but there is an obligation. If we are a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. Think of it this way. Our condemnation is replaced with an obligation. We come out from under the condemnation of our sin, but now we are living not as a burden and not as a weight, but as a joy-laced obligation, the, the life of a disciple. Now, what is an obligation? An obligation is the course of action to which we are morally or legally bound. It means that something has happened to us and we're going to live a life that is worthy of that thing that has lived in us. Another way of thinking about it is an obligation is the response to a debt of gratitude. You know, somebody does something great for you. I mean, you just sort of feel obliged to, to do something that reflects that, right? And what Paul is saying is that when you begin to get your mind around the fact that you are no longer condemned even though you deserve condemnation and there's no way to get out from under it, but because of what Jesus has done for you, you get your mind around that and what the Spirit of God is doing in your life because of love. Man, there is a debt of gratitude and you just feel obliged to live in a certain way. In this text, we're going to see three really important pieces of that obligation. The first is the spirit and sin. The second is the spirit of God and sonship. And the third is going to be the spirit and family. Let's start with the spirit and sin. Now, this text begins in verse 12. That's what uh, Ryan just read, 12 to 17. But I want you to, we want to go first to verse 11, the end of what was said last week. In verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, is living in you. The Spirit that raised Jesus living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Now, a lot of times, Christians are a little tangled up in the way that they think about the Spirit. Uh, a lot of times we think, you know, there's, God the Father, God the Father came, He created the heavens and the earth and everything in between, and then He split. And then God the Son, that is Jesus, came and He saved the world, and then He split, He left. And then God the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, came and wrote a book, and then He left. What Paul is saying to us as disciples of Jesus about the Holy Spirit is this, that the indwelling of God the Spirit is necessary to be a disciple. That is where the life of a disciple is found. Look again at verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will... If you live according to the flesh, you will... If you live according to the flesh, you will what? I mean, we get that, right? We're not living in the Spirit. We live according to the flesh. We're in the flesh. You know, we're not redeemed. We're still enslaved to sin. We know what happens. We are living a life of death. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, say it with me, you will live. Paul says that to live faithfully as a Christian is to allow the Holy Spirit living in you to dismantle the sin that is in you. In other words, God is an active participant in expelling every hideous sin from your life and my life. Now that's not always pleasant. It's not always a fun thing. You know, our son Jordan... When he was, and you know, I don't, I don't know if you, if you grew up kind of hating to get shots, you ever grow to a place where you like getting shots, but he was a great hater of getting shots when he was a little boy. He would fight with all of his strength, that little body could muster, to avoid getting a shot. And that's where I would be called in. Dad would come in, I would be called in to hold him while the doctor or the nurse administered shot and I mean many of you know what that's like holding down a kid you know to get a shot that they need in order to not get a disease right so he's looking up at me and in his eyes is betrayal he's looking at me and he's not saying it but he's saying it how could you I thought you were my dad I thought you were on my side and you just want to say to him, I, you, you know, you don't understand now, you understand later, you know. But what felt like murder to him at the time was actually an act of love against the diseases that could ravage his life and even murder him. I wasn't against him. I was for him. But it felt like I was holding him down. You ever felt like God was holding you down? The world is just so full of hard days. Hard moments. And the Spirit takes those hard days and He makes you more like Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, one of my favorite passages, and, and, and we... All who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. And we are being transformed into His image. We're being transformed into His image, His likeness. Then when people look at us, they should be able to see Christ. And when they look at us, they should be able to see something about the gospel. And when they look at us, they should be able to see love. And when they look at us, they should see something about the kingdom of God and what it is that God is trying to do in the world through human beings. That we are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen like that. You don't take a pill and all of a sudden, ta-da, I look like the Christ. It is the Spirit working in your life day by day, day by day, inch by inch, moment by moment, overcoming the, 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 the fleshly parts of your existence with the Spirit of God and transforming us with an increasing glory into the likeness of Jesus. That is the work of the Spirit. We just sang about that love that's never going to let you go. That's what's happening. And that brings us now to the Spirit and Sonship. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15. 
the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to what? Sonship. No longer a slave. And all that that means in terms of fear and the burden of life and the weight of life and all, you know, the, the being at, at vulnerable to the cruelties of life. But now you are made a son. Now, before I, I move any further, let me deal with a bit of an awkward metaphor, the word sonship. I mean, it just sounds a little bit gender exclusive. But when in the ancient world Paul was writing this, you know, the, the sons in that patriarchal society, they were the ones that got, you know, the oldest son got the double portion of the inheritance. The sons were the ones that received it. But in Christ, no male or female. So for, so for him to say that we are all becoming sons meant the ladies as well. Now, the word sonship includes women. The way the metaphor bride of Christ includes the men. You see what he's doing there? Now, in being made sons of God by the Spirit, we enter into an intimate relationship with God where He comes to us as Father. Now, one of the ways that we understand the concept of Father is the Father we grew up with. And a lot of times, you know, we, you know not, not every father is perfect. In fact, there are no perfect fathers. I had a great father. He was not perfect. I tried to be a great father. I'm not perfect. My son is now a father. Not perfect. But... There, there, there's, there's this goodness that in fathers we see. Sometimes it's just not there with some of the fathers we were given. But in this passage, Paul, to all of us who had good fathers and to those of us who had not so great, not so good earthly fathers, he says this is the kind of sonship, this is the kind of relationship that you have with God. You can call him Abba. That spirit of God in you that makes you a son, makes you a child of God, it's, it, it's by Him and what He's doing in us that enables us to look at God and to say, Abba. To say, Abba. It, it's not quite the same thing as saying, Daddy, but it's the same level of intimacy. This is the way that Jesus referred to God. Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We say to God, Abba. It was the most intimate way that a child could refer to their earthly father. You never ran away from Abba. You ran to Abba. You didn't feel fear in the presence of of Abba, unless you had sassed your mom, but you didn't feel fear in the presence of Abba. Abba was the one that you could go and ask the keys to the car. You could go ask for an advance in your allowance. I mean, you, you just knew that there was a relationship that was profound and deep and rich. It was a term of tenderness. It was a term in which you are saying to the Father, through the, what you call him, you're, you're saying to him, I love you. And when first century Hebrews heard Jesus referred to God as Abba, it just completely stripped their minds, discombobulated the traditional nationalistic way of thinking 
about God. God was high, and He is. And God was holy, and He is. And God is an all-consuming fire, and He is. But you know what the Spirit does? The Spirit makes the fire your Father. That is an incredible way to think about life in the world. And what Paul is saying is that you have become, through, through the, this adoption, through the work of the Spirit in you, that you are now part of God's family. That in verse 12, you have brothers and sisters. In verse 17, it's a we, it's all of us. In verse 16, it's about being God's children. It's about who our obligation is to allow the Spirit to drive that, to expel that sin out of our body. Our obligation is to enter into that relationship with God in which people see what God is doing in people through the gospel and that is transforming every part of their relationship with Him. And then the third part is this spirit and the future. We are because we are God's. We are because we are His family. We have become heirs. H-E-I-R-S, heirs. In verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs means what? Inheritance, right? Inheritance. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may share in His glory. Sharing in His suffering, sharing in His glory, that is a, a reference to the resurrection and the life to come and the future to come. And for us to understand what it means for us to be heirs, he says, you, you know what it means for you as a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God, a child of God, part of the family of God. Do you know what it means for you to be an heir? You're a co-heir with Christ. Meaning that everything that went to Jesus comes to us. And that's the beauty of the resurrection. The resurrection is a future that is beyond our ability to understand, to grasp it fully. It's something that we spend every day of our life you know, contemplating so that it becomes real. It goes all the way down to the very center of who we are. It becomes awake, becomes part of the core of how we live and act and interact in the world. But living in the resurrection, resurrection means that living in a joyful eternity in which there's not any meanness, there's no cruelty, there's no disease. Living in the resurrection means that there's not even a scent of sin. There's not a whiff of death. The things that plague us and the things that trouble us in this life will all be gone. And that is your worst day in eternity. Living in the resurrection means living in an eternity 
that we cannot even begin to imagine now. More on that next week. When you read Romans chapter 8, you can't help but think that Paul, as he's writing this to the church in Rome, as he's getting ready to go there, that he is thinking of Israel's exodus from Egypt. Moses arrives as the liberator. People, bondage, 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 weight, weight, weight of slavery. No getting out. Moses shows up and with great power, the display of great power culminating in the death of the firstborn, Israel is released from its bondage to slavery. And it's a fire by day and a cloud by night, the presence of God in the tabernacle, leading them from Mount Sinai, where God says that I am going to dwell with my people and we are going to go into the promised land. And he leads them to the promised land where all the while they are living and worshiping God. They are the people that are, are growing in their knowledge of God, who have this, this in, increasing appreciation for the presence of God, not only in their life and in their community, but in the world at large, as they learn more and more about Him. The people of Israel are His agents in the world. On the outskirts of the promised land, the spies with their hearts and minds full of the knowledge of God go into the land only to come back in fear. It was a failure on their part to see God flooding the world with a knowledge of the glory of God. You know the story. They wander 40 years and once again they enter the land and as Moses is helping the people to, to prepare themselves as the agents of God, the spies of God, again, the, the representatives of God, to go into the land, he reminds them of something really, really important. You know, that's what Deuteronomy is. Basically, three sermons where Moses, fearful for the people, says, remember, 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 remember. Get it right, get it right, get it right. And in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31, he says to the people, you saw how the Lord your God carried you. Think, think back. Think back over the years. The manna, water from a rock, the quail, the fire by night, cloud by day, protection. He carried you. He carried you as a father carries his son as a father carries his son all the way until you reached this place paul is writing in romans chapter 8 that his sons and daughters are the agents that go into creation go into the land each day with a knowledge of the glory of god a glory, the glory of God as it is wrought in their life through God's Spirit. God's Spirit is living in us as we go into His world as His agents. It's not in a tabernacle. God is living in us as we go into the world sharing that glory and explaining not only with our words but with our lives what the gospel of Jesus is all about and what God is up to in the world. Let's stand and sing.